A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife Mindy and I celebrated our 26th anniversary by going down to downtown St. Paul. We went to the Fitzgerald Theater, and there we saw a special screening of one of the greatest movies that has ever been created, The Princess Bride. It was a ton of fun. There were hundreds of Princess Bride super fans. They were there, and and we were all cheering the good guys, and we were booing the bad guys, and everyone was quoting the lines from the movie. And then after the movie, Wesley himself, the Dread Pirate Roberts, the man in black, Carrie Elwes was there, and there was a, a Q&A with him after the film was screened. He was up on the stage, and the audience was able to to interact with him, and he he told us stories about how he got the part of Wesley in the movie, about about filming the movie itself, some kind of insights into different scenes that were filmed. The people that he worked with, Billy Crystal and Andre the Giant, had some hilarious stories about Andre the Giant. And then after the Q&A, Mindy and I were able to be in a, a meet and greet where we had the chance to have a, a couple of minutes meeting with Carrie Elwes, and, and he was able to have his picture taken with us. You can see that picture now. Uh, as we were chatting with him, you know, it was kind of a, they were running people through, but we had a, a minute to chat with him. He asked us if we had fun at the event, and we said it was great. He asked us, like, were we on a date night? And we said, we actually were celebrating our anniversary. And then he said to us, ah, marriage, that blessed arrangement, which is like a pretty much a high point of my life. Uh, Princess Bride is a movie I have seen countless times. I don't know how many times I've seen it. Started watching it in junior high when it first came out and have watched it regularly over the years ever since. It's just kind of one of those movies that has, like the lines from the movie has taken up residence within me. The quotes just come to mind often in various different scenarios. Mindy and I will quote the movie back and forth to one another. We we use it in our parenting. If the kids are leaving, sometimes we'll say, bye-bye, boys, have fun storming the castle, and things like that. We'll say, no more rhymes now, I mean it, and someone will respond with, anyone want a peanut? You know, these these lines from the, the movie have just kind of become a part of us. And I'm sure you have your own movies where this is the case or, or TV shows where this is the case, where these things just kind of become embedded in our minds. There's another quote that is like this for me. It's not from a movie. Uh, it's not from a television show. It's, it's actually a, a, a theological quote. It's, it's from a pastor named A.W. Tozer. Maybe you've heard of Tozer. He's a pastor in the mid-20th century. He wrote some some very powerful books. And when I was in college and I was wrestling with my faith, I read a couple of Tozer's books and they were very helpful and very informative for me. But one of the quotes that really stands out, and it, it's a quote that has has taken up residence within my mind, within my heart, is this quote from Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We're in a series called Why Jesus? 
And in this series, we've been asking questions that are kind of the ground of our faith. Is our faith reliable? Is our confidence in Jesus reliable? Can the Bible be trusted? Is there evidence to support the Christian faith? Is the story of Jesus attested to in history? And what we have seen in these weeks that we've been investigating these questions is there is strong evidence that supports the Christian faith. And I've been encouraged by this. I hope you've been encouraged by this as we've walked through these uh, these different ways of understanding the evidence that supports our faith. And it is so vital, it is so important that we understand the grounding of our faith. And yet, I think there is more to the question of why Jesus. Because here's the thing, and this is certainly what I have experienced in my faith journey. We can believe the evidence, right? We can have confidence that the Bible is God's word. We can believe that the Bible is true, and yet we can still have false thoughts about God that operate in our minds, operate in our hearts. For many of us, when we think about God, although we believe the Bible, false things still come to mind. These may be thoughts that were formed in an early experience in a church tradition. It it may be that, that we grew up in a difficult family system and our relationship with our parents shaped the way that we see God. It may be that at some point we were in a church and there was an abusive pastor and the way that that pastor lived his or her life has impacted our vision of God. Perhaps at some point we were just exposed to ways that the gospel was preached that shape our particular way of understanding God, but that way of understanding in God doesn't truly reflect the heart of God. And so what comes into our minds when we think about God isn't true. The thoughts that rule our lives aren't formed truly. A misformed vision of God is the operating system that runs in the background of our soul. And though we might proclaim that the Bible is true and really believe that the Bible is true, when we think about God, False visions of God take residence in our heart and in our mind. Not because the information that we have is incorrect or because we don't really think that the Bible is reliable, but because our souls have been formed by misunderstandings of God. And these are what control our hearts. I've experienced this in my journey. I imagine a lot of you have experienced this in your own journey with Christ. We can be convinced the Bible is true, reliable, supported by evidence, and yet falsehood can still rule our hearts. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? If we are going to answer this question, why Jesus, we must be sure that our hearts are rooted in the truth 
about God, the truth about his nature, the truth about his character, the truth about his heart. So that's what we're going to explore together this morning as we open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is going to kind of take us on a tour of some of the key points of Jesus' life, his manger, his cross, and his tomb. We're going to reflect on these events in Jesus' life, and, and my hope and my prayer is that as we reflect on these events, as we reflect on this passage, that the Spirit of God would impress upon you a vision of the truth of God's character, of God's nature, that if things that you that come to mind when you think about God are false, that the word of God would eject those things from you this morning. This passage is going to place before us the truth of the heart of God. This is a passage that I imagine is probably familiar to a lot of us. Certainly, if you've been around the church, you've, you've come to Philippians 2 before. We find the letter, of course, in, in uh, uh, the, the passage in Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. Philippi was a city in the Roman Empire. It's in, in, in modern uh, Asia Minor. And, and there was a church there, and Paul was connected to that church. And, and as you know, if you read your Bible, that Paul wrote letters to the various churches where he either founded churches or he knew that they were believers, and he was writing letters to them. So this is a, a letter that he's writing to the people of Philippi. And in the particular section that we're looking at, Paul is encouraging the church to serve one another to be servants of each other. And just kind of set up what we're going to dig into this morning. I want to read verses 3 and 4, just to give us a little bit of context of what's going on here. Here's what he says in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of the others. It's not all about you. Don't make it all about you. You as a part of the body of Christ are here not simply to serve yourself. You're here to serve others. And, and, and Paul is encouraging the church to, to have that attitude, to walk in that way in their relationship with one another. And then he follows this encouragement in verse 5. By saying this, in your relationships with each other, have the, ma- the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So he's saying to them, serve each other. I don't make it all about yourselves. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Give yourselves for your neighbor. This is essential to what it means to be a Christian. And now he's wanting to direct them to the mind of Christ. And as he directs them to the mind of Christ, all of a sudden it's like Paul is in a musical because he breaks out in song. What, what follows and what we're going to dig into here is a, it's a hymn of praise. It's likely a hymn that the church was familiar with, probably a song that they sang regularly in their gatherings. And now Paul is using that hymn to teach them this truth about the mind of Jesus Christ. And in giving them this hymn of praise, he is calling them to a vision of the person of Christ. And through that, 
Paul is taking the Philippian church into the very heart of God so that their hearts and their minds and their relationships and their church would be formed truthfully around the heart of God that is reflected in the life of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to allow these words to shape your heart's understanding of the very nature of God so that when you think of God, these true things are what come to your mind and your heart. So Paul then goes on saying, after he said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then he writes this in verses 6 and 7, this hymn of praise to Christ. He described him as, he describes him as this, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. In these verses, Paul is describing the reality that the second person of the Trinity became a human being. This is the event that we call the incarnation. And it's the event that we remember every Christmas when we gather around the manger of Jesus Christ. And we remember that event because we believe at the heart of our faith is the truth that the one who is in very nature God becomes in very nature human. Being made, as Paul says in verse 7, in human likeness. Now, what Paul means by that is not he appeared to be like us, as if God put on a human costume and didn't really become human, but just kind of made himself look like a human. That's not what inhuman likeness means. What it means is he became exactly like us. He became human like us. Jesus is God become human. God truly became one of us. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, stepped out of the eternal glories of heaven and became a human, fully entering into our world. What does this tell us about God, about his heart, about his nature, about his character? It tells us this, God is with us. God is with you. When you think of God, does the image of God as a a distant, uncaring God come to mind? Does your heart believe that, that God is indifferent Even though you believe in the incarnation, does your heart tell you that God is far off? If this is the case, then look to the manger. 
Look to the Son of God, who took on the nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. Look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The, the incarnation of Jesus, this idea that God became human and that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, this isn't meant to be some kind of a, a medical, a metaphysical formula that confuses us. The hymn tells us it's the opposite. Yes, it's a mystery, but it's also a revelation of something that is true. It is a making known of a truth, and the truth that is being made known here is that God is with us. This is his heart. This is his nature. This is his character. He entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. He entered into our shame, our fear, our brokenness, our sin, that we might know him and be with him. We can be with him because he came to be with us. Is this what comes to your mind when you think about God, that God is with you? The manger of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God, makes it absolutely clear God is with us. As Paul goes on in the hymn in verse 8, he writes this, And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here, Paul directs us to the cross of Christ, the event of the crucifixion. Of Jesus. The cross is what we remember in the season of Lent and on Good Friday, a season that is going to be upon us in just a few short weeks. During this season, we reflect on the passion of Christ. We reflect on his suffering. We remember that, that he was the man of sorrows. We remember that he hung on the cross as one who was forsaken by God. And in this verse, this stanza of the hymn, Paul talks about the humility of Christ, his willingness to obey God, even if that takes him to the lowest place, the cross. Why? Why? did Jesus do this? Why did God do this? What does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is for us. When you think about God, does the image of a God who is against you come to mind? Does your soul try to convince you that God disapproves of you? that God is disappointed with you? If this is the case, then look to the cross. Look to the Son of God hanging on the tree. He was crucified as one cursed by God, who in obedience has followed his Father's will to the very end. 
The cross reveals the truth about God. He is for us. He is for us in our refusal to be for him. He is for us in our rejection of him. He is for us when we sin against him. God is for us. God is for you. Is this what comes to mind when you think about God? That God is for you? The cross of Christ, the crucifixion of the Son of God makes it absolutely clear God is for us. The final stanza of the hymn that we find in verses 9 through 11 says this. It says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, Paul takes us to the eternal glory of Christ in heaven, raised to the highest place, honored above all others. And in taking us to heaven, Paul is also calling us to glance back at the earth, where there stands an empty tomb. The empty tomb is what we remember on Easter It's the glorious event of Christ's resurrection, his victory over sin and death. In Paul's vision here of the exalted Christ, he is calling us to reflect on the empty tomb. To ponder the stone that was rolled back, the burial clothes that were left behind, the rock slab on which the dead body of Jesus was laid that no longer holds his body. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is above us. When you think about God, does the image of a God who is a cruel ruler come to your mind? Does your soul try to convince you That God is a hard taskmaster? That God is a God who who sits like a judge in a courtroom above everyone else? Proclaiming sentence upon you? If this is the case, then look to the empty tomb. The tomb makes it clear that God is is above us, but we must be clear about what this above means. It's not the above of a master who lords it over a slave. It's not the above of a boss who manipulates an employee. It's not the above of a judge who sits elevated over us, casting stern looks at us. No, for we who confess, who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, this is the wonderful above of the glorious God, the eternally good and gracious Lord. This is the above that your heart was made for. This is the above that our souls are created to glory 
in. This is the above that our hearts were created to worship. This is why Paul says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are to bow before him because he is above us. But that above is not a cruel above. That above is the glory that you and I were created to behold. That you and I were created to live in. Is this the above that comes to your mind when you think about God? The tomb of Christ, the resurrection and the enthronement of the Son of God make it absolutely clear God is above us. And we were created to glory in that above, in our hearts only find satisfaction when we rest them in him. So, why Jesus? Why Jesus? My journey of faith has been a struggle. I've often said to people that faith doesn't come easily to me. People are often surprised at that because I'm a theologian, which is a pretty audacious thing to be, by the way. But I'm a theologian, not because I have a strong faith, but because I have a weak faith. Because I have a trembling faith. Because I struggle to understand these Mysteries because I struggle to understand who God is because my heart struggles to believe that these things are true. Not because I don't have the right information, not because I, I don't believe the Bible, but because there are images and pictures and thoughts that operate within me that keep me from the heart of God. I, I feel compelled to keep pursuing God, not because I have all the answers, not because I have it all squared away. I I feel compelled to keep pursuing God because in the weakness of my faith, I still feel drawn to him. As I've wrestled with my faith, I've realized there's a lot I, I don't know. There's a lot that I will never know but I've come to really resonate with the passage in John chapter six. When all the disciples are leaving Jesus and he comes to the core 12 and he asks them, are are you going to leave me too? And Peter says to Jesus, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I have often thought of myself, am I going to, keep following after Jesus? Am I going to keep pursuing this? And every time I've come to one of those crossroads in my life, I I realize I can't go anywhere else. Where else would I go? Because I've believed deep in my soul that Jesus does have the words of eternal life, that Jesus is the one who reveals God. And even as I struggle to believe that, and even as I struggle to live that out, 
I know deep down that that is true. And when I root myself in Jesus, when I root myself in the manger and in the cross and in the tomb, and I root myself in those things that reveal the very heart of God, I find that then within me, the right thoughts about God are formed. And that truly is the most important thing about me. So I want to ask you this morning, as we close our time, what comes to your mind when you think about God? Is it true? Even as you wrestle with faith, even as you struggle with who Jesus is and this question, why Jesus What are the thoughts about God that come into your mind? And I want to encourage you. The manger, the cross, and the tomb reveal to us the truth about God. God is with you. God is for you. God is above you. And trust yourself to those truths and follow after Jesus as he guides you to the heart of God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace and the love that you have poured out upon us. I pray that you would strengthen each of us in our faith. I pray that, that for all of us who have different ways that our, our, our visions of you have been formed that, that aren't true, that you would use these verses, that you would use your word to be reforming us, that we might trust in you, that we might know that you are good, that we might know that you are loved, and that we might walk with you in truth. We pray these things for your glory. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.